0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. hold on to your hats as I say, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1, it's actually reported about these Christians you understand in the city of Corinth, this is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, it's actually reported that there's a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans, a man has his father's wife and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Um, So brothers and sisters, why, uh, you might be wondering, why do we need to learn a lesson like that, uh, of all things? Why do we even need to hear a lesson like that? It makes for harder even listening. What benefit uh, lies within these verses for the people of God in His church today, in our church? Uh, what benefit is to be found for us here today? It, nobody here, I trust, needs convincing that incest was a bad idea. Uh, We already share not just Paul's conviction, um, but I think it's fair to say Paul's, how would you describe it? Revulsion? I think it's safe to assume. You know, our moral compass is aligned at least with the pagans of Corinth back in that day. They wouldn't have tolerated it, they wouldn't have let it go. So what benefit is to be found uh, for us here today? Folks, if that's you and if that's some of what you're wondering as this passage is read to us and and as we begin to mull over it, let me say I'm with you, um, but I want to tell you that this passage isn't really about incest. Paul doesn't waste his breath, does he, arguing against it, making a case um, against it, uh, lest we make the same mistake. No, no, his focus... Is elsewhere entirely and I think we've got lots to gain from what Paul brings to us across these two chapters. Uh, before we pray, let me just wind back the clock for us a little bit, wind back the pages of 1 Corinthians. Do you remember when we were last in 1 Corinthians? It was around about 12 months ago uh, and we're now coming in halfway through the letter, part the way through the letter. Now, can you remember, summarise for yourself, just the first four chapters? What are 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4 about. Can you call that to mind? Can, have you got a sense of what we're coming in on uh, as we come to chapter 5 now? Uh, in those opening four chapters, Paul, I want to say, I think he pleaded with the Corinthians, wasn't that the tone that he struck there? Pleaded with the Corinthians, it was quite desperate, pleaded with them to rediscover the riches of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that they already had in their hands right? This is what you've already got. So in these opening four chapters, um, take a look at the gospel of Jesus that you have in your hands. For instance, you Corinthians, you have in your hands the very power of God in the gospel of Jesus. You've got the power of God. So don't lust after the powerful, influential somebodies of your day there in Corinth, these uh, um, dashing personalities helping you get your nose in front in life ahead of others. No, no, love rather that power of God in Christ as He hangs from the cross in weakness. Remember the paradox of the Gospel, power in weakness. Love the power of God that's in the Gospel of Jesus as He hangs from the cross an absolute nobody in the eyes of the world lifeless, shameful and yet powerful to reshape the very destinies of men and women and boys and girls, eternally, even you. Love the message of the cross, O Corinthians, fall on your knees before that display of power. That's on the one hand. Uh, Another angle, uh, not just the power but also the wisdom. Do you realise what you have in your very hands, O Corinthians? You've got the wisdom of God there in the Gospel. So look not to Corinthians, uh, Corinth's brightest, most promising luminaries, you know, the deep thinkers of their day, full of hot air, eager for a fee, to pass on their wisdom about how to live life uh, in this world. No, no, look rather to the foolish and shameful and unimpressive message of God's tender love for the world, where in the crumpled body of Jesus for you, because there do you see, you find not only wisdom from God about how to live in this world, no, you find deep insight into God himself, you see the character of God himself as you look at the Gospel of Jesus, there is truly deep insight for you, God's man dangling from a cross for us and raised to life forever, there you'll find true wisdom. Take another look at what you've got in the Gospel. So can I put it like, uh, like this for us, chapters 1 to 4, O Corinthians, you've got the Gospel and you've got it up here, chapters 5 to 11, where we're going now, then how is the Gospel going to look out there? You've got it up here, 1 to 4, how's it going to look out there in all of life, in every part of life? How does the Gospel show in real life? How does the Gospel leave its mark down in the grit and the muck, and the murkiness, and the muddle of real Corinthian life, or indeed real um, Hobart life for us? How does it affect your work, and your worship, and every thought, and word, and deed? 1 Corinthians chapters 5 to 11. So welcome back to 1 Corinthians. Six weeks, let me tell you, on a roller coaster uh, down in the grit of life. Let's pray as we come to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 today. Father God in heaven, we confess that as it comes to us, your word includes words to us that sound strange, that strike us as odd, that seem unnecessary to us at first glance. And so, O oh Lord God, may we sit before your word, may we sit under your word to us now with a readiness to learn surprising lessons. From the voice of our God, not just lessons for our minds, but for our very lives. O oh God, may we not measure ourselves against that very muddled church in Corinth and so set ourselves a low bar, so to speak, but may we hear and may we heed the lessons that we personally, that we individually and we together as a church need to hear, in our day and age, in our stage in Christian history and the Christian life. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I already put it to you that I reckon chapter 5 is, it doesn't bother trying to convince you that this man has made a terrible moral error. Uh, so what is chapter 5 actually about? Can you answer me that? Let's, uh, let's have a read of it together now. And I'd like you to have two questions open in mind as we, uh, just think about this, this topic of purity, first of all. Two questions for you to have in mind as we read through. Firstly, what action does Paul call for? What, what thing does he tell them to do? What action does Paul expect the Corinthians to take? That's the first question to have in mind, I think. But secondly, and, and I think much more, um, uh, difficult to get out is why? So why, on what basis, what is his logic for calling for the specific action that he expects the Corinthians to take? Come with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you're proud, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Now, here comes the action that they're supposed to take. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What does that actually mean, do you think? Hand him over to Satan. If you skip down to verse 9, I think it says it in a slightly less dramatic way, I think it's it's a dramatic way of saying you cannot continue counting this guy as a brother in the Lord, can you? Verse 9, have a look there. I've written you, says Paul, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler with such a man, do not even eat. Puts it very bluntly in verse 13, expel the wicked man from among you. Um, Now for just a moment, and you'll see why in a minute, for just a moment, may I attempt to cast this man and his sin in hopefully a plausible reconstruction, Um, some of its conjecture, may I cast it in the most understandable, the most perhaps relatable uh, light that I can and I'll give you five ways to frame it. Firstly, and I hope this is obvious from the passage, I think we're talking about a stepmother, do you see, not a natural mother. Uh, What was the language used there? Has his father's wife rather than has his own mother. Do you see? I I suspect we're talking about a stepmother, that's number one. Secondly, I think we're safe to assume the father has died, Um, otherwise he would have done something about it. Thirdly, the widow, now get this, the widow was very likely the son's own age. Um, Do you realise that? So this this is conjecture, but wealthy older men, then as now actually, Wealthy older men often married women much younger than themselves. Young enough to be his daughter. He's old enough to be her father. We, we use that phrase, don't we? Um, it was very much the same then. Uh, so fourthly, you, you put these things together. So with dad now in the grave, the family inheritance resides in the hands of a young-ish widow a widow who could remarry and do you realise when she does, where goes the inheritance? The family inheritance goes with her, even though it would have been to the son all along, do you see? And lastly, in a culture, fifthly, lastly, in a culture where you might well enter marriage for reasons other than love, It's not so common in our culture, is it? But you might well enter marriage for reasons other than love, financial reasons perhaps, political reasons, reasons to do with social position. Is it not at least plausible that we're looking at a young man chasing a young woman whose family fortune would otherwise evade him entirely? It's a wise marriage, in other words, but for the fact that it was his place in life to play the role of the son and hers to play the role of his mother. Now, why do I raise all that? Why do I hypothesise about that? It's because, it's for this reason, because when we face serious public sin in one of our own, we've got to remember this, don't we? We will try to play it down. We'll try to look for extenuating circumstances. We'll try to Come up with the most plausible reason to give it credence. Why? Because they're real people, of course. We'd have known his name if we lived in Corinth at the time. Why? Because they're members of our church. Why? Because, well, maybe they just lost their dad. Or maybe they've been really generous to our church over the years. Really generous, this wealthy man and his family. And Paul is saying, look, if you really have this person's, his best interests at heart, then you'll make it clear to him, you can't continue counting him as a brother in the Lord while his life departs from Christ increasingly. Until the Gospel, in other words, starts to show in the grit of his life, down in the muck and the mess and the muddle. Now, is that a hard teaching? You bet it is, because you don't know if they'll ever come back. You don't know how can you know? Hand this man over to Satan, verse 5, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You see Paul's priority there, but answer me this, if you don't do that, if you don't take that course of action, if you, if we as a church, if that Corinthian church fails, if they let this thing fester, then verse 6, what's at stake? It's more than just that one man's salvation, I think. Verse 6, what's at stake? Verse 6, your boasting is not good. What's the point of this metaphor here? Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, therefore... Let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Folks, here's where the gospel has got to show, even in the grit of church life together. It's this, a church that believes that Jesus has died for our sin will be a church that's convinced that sin has got to die amongst us. A church that believes that Jesus has died for our sin is a church that will believe that sin has got to die amongst us. Do you believe that? So if I'm part of a community that says with our mouths, God has forgiven me for my selfish wayward ways, and yet I continue, we continue living in those selfish wayward ways, they are alive and well in our midst, down in the grit of life, well, we we are a community that has lost touch with our convictions, aren't we? Do you see what Paul's addressing here in Corinth? Then we would be a community that cannot hope to help its members to live and believe and share those convictions. We'd be a community that can't reasonably hope to hold out those glorious convictions to the world around us. Now, pastorally, I just want to say I think it gets very difficult when you get into real life with this stuff because in some cases, like what does repentance even look like? And I know that, you know, over the years, um, you who've been elders at different times, you've had to wrestle with this through session meetings and figure out what does repentance even look like when life gets messy and muddled and murky. Imagine, for example, in their context in Corinth, that imagine for a moment that this couple that they got married and had a child in the intervening period before Paul's letter arrived back. What then, do you see? What would real repentance look like for that man then in that circumstance? How would you know when he is gripped again by the gospel of grace? How would the gospel look down in the midst of that mess and muddle? I, I think it defies easy answers but I do think the principle's clear, isn't it? let Christ's passion for purity among His people surpass our priority for keeping the peace. Purity. Uh, secondly, more quickly now, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit because perhaps you're wondering, wait, wait a second, <laughs> uh, where does this passion for purity stop? Uh, How far do you take it? Is this passion for purity, we're all sinners, so are we headed down a path toward witch hunts? Is that sort of the thing that we're faced with here? Is that the path that we're being sort of uh, edged towards? Or uh, or perhaps you're a bit more concerned for yourself in a way, what what, what about my sin? Am I going to be outed as a a sinful man, a sinful person? And, and, And what's the threshold? Um what's, what's the threshold for expel the wicked man among you? And has my sin come up to that threshold yet? Perhaps you're wondering, wait a second, where might this lead for me? Am I next? Now, this is very interesting because I, I think chapters five and six, they have to be held together because having skewered this one man, Paul now broadens his focus to the whole church and he doesn't minimise sin one little bit, but he won't let them tear one another apart, chapter six. You are a church, O Corinth, riddled with a greedy, with a proud spirit of one-upmanship. It is throughout you. You need purity. Yes, that's true. But here's the main difference that the gospel is going to make in the grit and the mess and the muddle of your life. It'll look like a passion for peace, purity and peace together. Come with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's just pick it up from verse 6. We can see the trouble there well enough. But instead, says Paul, one brother, so among you in the Corinthian church, one brother goes to law against another and this in front of unbelievers, They're taking each other to court. Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, Given the present climate in Australia. Uh, let me save a couple of comments just about the inclusion of homosexuality there for my last point, let me come back to that. But, but please don't gloss over the rest of verse 9 for now, don't gloss over the rest of verse 9. What did it say? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And What does he march off with then? He marches off with a bunch of sexual sins and idolatry, in other words, he covers off that bloke from chapter 5 and the pagans in Corinth will not inherit the Kingdom of God. But it, it prompts, the, it begs the obvious question, doesn't it, then who will inherit the Kingdom of God? Well, we will, of course, Christians in Corinth, the people of the Church of Corinth, we will, we're the Christians after all. But I think with the rest of that list, isn't Paul saying, well, You will so long as you know that Christians are people who actually believe the Gospel, who actually have the Gospel alive and well, not just in your heads but in your life, who believe it in fact and not just in theory because, hello, verse 10, who are the people listed there? Remember Paul has just described these Corinthians as people who, verse 8, cheat, do wrong and this to your brothers. He's just described them as people hauling one another to court in a shameful bunch of circumstances with a terrible mix of motives. Well, the wicked who won't inherit the kingdom include, verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see the upshot? Don't just be passionate about Their purity, his purity, her purity over there, I can't believe she's still even allowed in our church, do you know what she's done? Get passionate about your own purity, O Corinthians, because if you share Christ's passion for your purity, perhaps you'll find peace easier to come by together. How does it go on? So we'll read from verse 9 again, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you were hoping to continue to cling to your sin, O Corinthians, because ah, it's not that serious, it's not as bad as his, because ah, it's not that big, <laughs> have you heard what she did? Look not to her, look to the Lord. I think um, the late John Stott, uh, puts it really well. I, I, I marvel at how he finishes this. Let, let me just read this to you. He says, nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately, what sent Christ there was neither the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priests, nor the cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, envy, cowardice, and other sins. And Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment and so put them away. He goes on, he says, it is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There, he says, these noxious weeds shrivel and die, they are seen for the tatty, poisonous things they are. Purity, yes, and peace. Thirdly and lastly, passion. Where does passion fit into the grit and the muddle and the murk and the mess of life? Uh, Would you please just imagine for a moment that, that someone that you love, someone that you really care about, a friend of yours... Um uh, but for the sake of the illustration, and, and let's go with a non-Christian friend, have you got someone in mind, someone who's very dear to you, not a Christian person, they come to you and um they're deeply troubled by some of the things that they encounter in God's Word, some of the rules perhaps, and, and here's what they say to you, and I'd like you to figure out if you could um a reply, how, how you would reply to them, what you'd say. So they come to you and they say, look, What business is it of God to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body, or even should want to do with my own body? You know, usual caveats, so long as I'm not hurting anyone else. What business is it of God to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body? Surely God ought to be able to accept me just as I am. Um, He ought to be big enough to look past things that he finds a bit distasteful or not exactly to his liking, couldn't he still connect with me spiritually like any other person on the planet? What business is it of God to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body? I think it's fair to say that that does capture up some of our, um, some of the matters relating to homosexuality from verse 9 from before, but it's far more broad than that, isn't it, as well? My, what I do with my own body? <laughs> That's a vast question. Now, do you know how you'd reply? What would you say? But dear friend, someone who cared about your answer came to you and said, what business is it of God to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body? Well, Would you please take a look at our last section? Let's look at that together from verse 12. Because I think there's two answers in here, two. Um, Paul starts off, and I think he's quoting the Corinthians, everything is permissible for me. I think he's quoting their letter to him. This is the kind of language that they use. Everything is permissible for me but, replies Paul, not everything is beneficial. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's good for anyone that you do everything that's permissible for you. Everything is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, they say, but, replies Paul, I won't be mastered by anything. Uh, In other words, in Paul's thinking, I call the shots, not my body, not its appetites, I'm not ruled by my stomach or my sex drive or whatever. Verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body, says Paul, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he'll raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? I think he's taking an extreme example there. Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. So thirdly, what do we do with the passions of life? What business is it of God to lay claim to my very actions, to how I spend my life, to what I do with my body? Let me suggest two answers from those verses. Number one is there in verse 13, isn't it? God calls for you to live your life in a particular way precisely because, do you, get, do you realise this, God has designed you with that way in mind, The Lord, the body is meant for the Lord. I think that's what that's driving at. Or to put it more positively, God has designed you, designed us not to bow and bend to any and every appetite that comes to us. No, there is a life for you that runs with the grain of how God has intended your life to be. I think that's one possibility from those verses that you could pursue in answer. The second avenue though, Is there in verses 19 and 20 and it points in a different direction. It's not just that you're made for a particular life but verse 20, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, Paul reminds us. Christian brother or sister this morning, there's a sense in which I don't know how you should answer that friend of yours. I'm not quite sure and I'll tell you why because the Gospel doesn't just call that non-believer to a life of rules, does it? It doesn't just call them to live with the grain of, that God has set before them. No, it calls them to a Lord who gave His body with its appetites and desires, gave His life that we'd live our lives as we were always intended to. That's what the Gospel calls them and it calls us To look upon the power and the wisdom of God as Christ gave His life for us. You were bought with a price. And then to put that life on display in the grit of life. But I want to say, and we'll close with this, I reckon that Gospel of Jesus is good news in what it says about my life and yours. It's good news in that it says my life is about something bigger than me, it's about God. It's good news in that it says that my life is about something better than me, the benefit of the people around us, not everything's beneficial. It's good that it, in, in that it says that my life is about something more beautiful than it would ever amount to if I just lived it to gratify my passions. Christ in the Gospel is calling us to put the Gospel into the very grit of life and to pursue purity in ourselves and among one another in peace with God and with one another. Shall we pray together? Our Father in heaven, it would be a deeply troubling thing indeed to discover Your Lordship over every little department of our lives were it not for the fact that we discovered at the very same moment that you are a loving God, that you are a pure God, that you are a gracious God who has reached into our world for our sake in the Gospel of Jesus. Father, thank you that we have been bought at a price. Thank you for the value that you placed on us, the very death of your own Son. Lord God, that is a, a gift we cannot repay But by your spirit, may we seek to live up to the calling that we've received. Father, we know that the desires and passions of our bodies and lives are very powerful indeed. Uh, We pray, Father, that we would be men and women and boys and girls who lean on you in the midst of life, who find in your gospel the resources to live before you, to go with the grain that you've set out before us instead of to go with the flow. Father, may we pursue purity in our own lives with the same passion and the same energy with which Christ pursued us in the Gospel. And Father, we pray that that would drive us to humility before one another, that would be servants of one another in the pursuit of peace, in the pursuit of Christ's glory in our world. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.